is it that the condition that the kids have that causes a disability or is it the environments in which they're expected to function the cause of the disability because we ought to be able to put some thought into this as reasonable people and think about how do we redesign our environments in such a way that kids and adults are more able to do what God created them to do and really fulfill all of their God-given gifts and talents. You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll-Thompson. Steve, I want to say hi and thank you for being with us today as you talk about mental health, mental challenges, and families and kids, and how churches can work together to understand this huge subject. So tell us a little bit about your background, first of all. I know Key Ministry, awesome, awesome foundation and organizations supporting families. Um, but tell me a little more broadly how you've been practicing and what you're doing these days. Well, Colleen, I wear a lot of different hats. So by training, I'm a physician specializing in child and adolescent psychiatry. And through some of the work that I've done there, I'm involved in teaching at a couple of medical schools. We have a fairly large private practice group in suburban Cleveland made up with another child psychiatrist. We have a couple of psychologists, a handful of counselors and social workers, and work as a team to help you know, families who have kids with significant psychiatric or emotional issues. I started dabbling in research shortly after getting out of training, which was something that I never, ever, 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 ever <laughs> thought I'd be involved with. Um, and, you know, as God would have it, we actually had one of the three original research grants for a product that is known as Adderall today. And, you know, so I had an opportunity to do some early research with that and had an opportunity to, to travel and teach pretty extensively. More recently, we've been involved with several studies that were funded by the National Institute of Mental Health to look at safety and side effect issues with some of the medicines that are commonly given to kids. And for the last 10 plus years, I've served as first president and now chairman of key ministry. And our team basically does whatever it takes to help resource, train, and support churches to welcome families who have kids with disabilities in general, but we've long focused on the notion of hidden disabilities. So this would be kids with any significant like emotional, behavioral, developmental, or neurologic condition where there aren't necessarily outwardly apparent physical symptoms. Because one of the things that we had found is that, you know, people in the church will be very supportive. If you have a kid with Down syndrome, a kid who's in a wheelchair, a kid with cerebral palsy. But our ministry actually started when I was on the elder board at our church back in the late 1990s. And we had a number of families that had adopted some kids with some very complex emotional and developmental conditions from orphanages in Russia and Bulgaria. And one of the things that we had found is that, you know, people are really understanding a church when you have a child where they've got some visible problem. But when you have a kid with autism, 
kids with attachment problems, you know, kids who may have had fetal alcohol exposure. One of the parents at the church at the time kind of summed it up very nicely when they said that people in the church sometimes think that they can tell when a disability ends and bad parenting begins. And unfortunately, a lot of families what, yeah. that are, you know, that are open to hearing the gospel message and being a part of a church, you know, all too often have told me that they've encountered situations where they really felt judged. And so that, you know, it's with these, these more subtle kinds of disabilities, um, the things that aren't maybe as overtly obvious to like the lay person, but really presents significant barriers, not just to the child in terms of their ability to be involved with church, but to the entire family in terms of their ability to be involved with church has really been our focus since the inception of our ministry 10 years ago. Well, I have to tell you, I was remembering last night, I think you were one of the first to call Insight in 2004 when Dad and I did the interview with Jonathan. Mm -hmm. And for those of y'all who don't know Steve, which is probably most of the audience, um, Steve, you helped me so much with Jonathan's needs, and you continue to, which is his servant's heart. And that's what Key really has. I want all of the people listening to this to go and look up Key Ministry, because I think you all were one of the first to offer teaching and training and courses and helps of all kinds. So people could really understand what these challenges were that were not bad parenting issues, mm -hmm. of which, you know, I was handed several parenting <laughs> cards. <laughs> I won't tell you what I wanted to do. But the fact of the matter is, most people, when they see a visible sign, a study was done on this. In fact, you probably heard about it that when they see a wheelchair or a disfigurement or an amputation or a crutch or a wheelchair, whatever, there's great compassion. But people who are put into a room surrounded by kids with neurological or invisible disabilities and mental health issues were incredibly critical until they found out that those children were disabled, but no one could see it. And, it, and then the compassion quotient went up 60 to 70%. That's Isn't right. that amazing? Well, the well, thing you I did that research study, yeah. so go ahead and elaborate. Well, one of the things that really struck me, and part of what led to the whole key ministry thing, is that so I'm serving on the board at our church when this issue or topic comes up about serving, you know, some of the kids who had been adopted from these orphanages overseas. And for probably the next couple of months, one of the things I started doing just routinely is I went through all of our kids. And started asking the parents a few screening questions about church and about spiritual development. And while, you know, we had been looking around at one point for some money to try and fund, you know, a reasonably well-designed study to look at this specific topic. What just clinical experience, if I had to, if I had to make a guesstimate, and right. this is not based on any research, I would say that when a kid has a significant emotional, behavioral, or developmental issue, if I had to guess, it's probably 50% less likely that that kid and their family will be actively involved as a member of a local church compared to another kid in our community. You know what's interesting, Steve, is that I have read several research studies on that, and it's about 90% 
to 95% actually of families who have a child or loved one with a disability. And that includes the biggest disabled group over 55, which is Alzheimer's and mm-hmm. all of those disorders. Well, one comment on that. I'm yeah. at times lovingly, at times maybe not so lovingly referred to by our ministry team as data man. And one of the things I've been involved with in the past is sort of, I was one of the guys who would review research to see like what would get into certain journals or what would get presented at like, you know, a major meeting of an organization I'm involved with. And I had done a search on this actually for somebody within the last week. And a lot of this data is anecdotal, but the interesting thing is that nobody has actually looked at the issue since 1994 was the last time that the topic had come up. And it was a Harris study looking more at people with physical disabilities, adults with physical disabilities, that showed that they were less likely to be actively involved with church. Um, So, I mean, it's an area where we need, you know, a lot more research. There's a guy down the road from you, um, Dr. Matt Stanford down at Baylor. All right. um, Who has a research group there where they had been, they published some work about two years ago. where they had shown that there is a huge discrepancy between the perception of people at church who don't have a disability Mm. in terms of the importance of support for families that were struggling with mental health issues. And, um, you know, I had written some stuff about this on our blog. If um, people were to Google Matthew Stanford Baylor, they would probably pull up some of this stuff. But the interesting thing was in their study, out of 40 identified needs, families that were impacted by mental illness cited support specifically for that from the church as their second most important need out of 40, where people, the church as a whole, ranked it probably in the bottom 10 in terms of that, you know, in terms of that list. And so, you know, part part of my approach in looking at this, just, you know, from you know, from a faith standpoint is, you know, like, you know, Jesus's last words, you know, that, you know, go therefore and make disciples. I think he kind of meant for us to take that seriously. And when (laughs) usually he does when it comes to commands. Yeah. Especially like last (laughs) words before you're like going off to heaven and everything. And, and, and when I think about like underserved people groups, um, you know, I've told like our team and at conferences, I like my high tech stuff. You know, I love wireless. I love the ESPN app. I love stuff like that. So like doing the missionary thing in third world countries is like, I mean, I'm glad God's not calling me to that, at least at this point in Don't time. Don't say never, I hope never, not to ever. Give me any ideas. <laughs> but, you know, that literally, you know, that there are hundreds of kids and hundreds of families, if you look at the statistics living within a short distance of our churches, literally like within the shadow of our steeples, that aren't able to come and hear the gospel on a regular basis, aren't able to come to faith in Jesus, and aren't able to grow in faith as a part of a loving church family. Because the way in which we do church for a lot of families with mental illness provides or poses very significant barriers and at times insurmountable barriers to them being part of their larger family in Jesus. Well, and I'm sure you can tell me about more research studies. By the way, like I need to be receiving these from you because I love research. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so put me on that checklist. I'm going to look up the Stanford one. Let's back up for just a second and let's identify 
for us because mental health can easily be assumed. See, here we have assumptions again. Mm -hmm. It can be assumed that it's, you know, someone that's crazy off in the corner. Or, but when I was looking through some things, I was shocked to see ADHD, to see bipolar, to see, I know personality disorders are on there, mm -hmm. but PTSD and depression. And when you're raising a, a child with disabilities or caring for a loved one, caregivers have a huge risk of depression. So we're not just talking about, you know, the little kids. We're talking mm -hmm. a broad spectrum. Tell me what, how, how would that be defined as, as naming and defining what these mental or behavioral health disorders are? Well, one of the things that is in the process of being revised and coming out, you know, you know, coming out later this year at the time that we're doing this interview is that there's been an elaborate process for several years to redefine the diagnostic criteria yes. for mental and emotional disorders and what's going to be called the DSM-5. Right. I have the DSM-4. Yeah. Where, you know, it's it's been somewhat controversial because there's been some studies that have come out over the last couple of years where people have been quite shocked to find out just how many kids and how many adults actually meet the criteria for and are having significant difficulty functioning on a day-to-day -day basis because of these different mental conditions. So at the time that we're speaking, a couple of weeks ago, the um, Center for Disease Control came out with a report that showed that 20% of all high school boys in the United States and 10% of all high school girls have been diagnosed with ADHD at some point in time. Um, the prevalence of anxiety among teens is somewhere between 8 to 12 percent in terms of meeting criteria for at least one anxiety disorder. And fewer than 20 percent of them have ever gotten any kind of counseling, seen a family physician, gotten any treatment whatsoever for their anxiety. People are very familiar because of like the advocacy work from the folks at like Autism Speaks. Yes. That one in 88 children born in the United States today is likely to receive a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder. But there have been other statistics out, and I had done some stuff recently on the blog looking at depression, where you know as many as like 20 to 25 percent of the you know adult female population in the United States will be taking an antidepressant medicine at some point in their lifetimes and so you know one of the challenges is that a lot of times you know the child has a disability or they have some struggles that make it hard for the family to be able to do church but a lot of times it's the parents that will have the disability as well and there are barriers that we have to think about in terms of helping, you know, you know, helping the parents and helping the family to participate, you know, in addition to thinking about some of the concerns that would come up for an individual child when they're trying to do church. Now, a different way of thinking about this and, and that I think is worth us pondering, especially coming back to the whole ADHD question is... You know, how is it possible that there are so many kids who are being diagnosed with this? That's a we, great question. We know that about 75% of it can be accounted for on the basis of genetics right now. But why is it so much more common in this generation of kids than what was like being described, say, like when you and I were going through school? And one of the challenges is that in a lot of ways, what we're asking kids to be able to do... Huh. And what's being demanded of them in the environments in which they need to function. When you think about 
their school environment. You think about their church environment. You think about extracurricular activities, athletic environment. You think about their home environment. That increasingly we're asking kids to be able to do stuff that maybe they're not wired to do. And you start asking the question, to what extent is the problem necessarily the child versus the environment in which the child's being asked to function? Ben Connor, um, who is, he's a... um, He's a theology professor. He's in Virginia now. He leads a group for teens and young adults with Asperger's disorder huh. and other autism spectrum and developmental disorders. And that part of the point that he made in the book that he wrote recently is that is it that the condition that the kids have that causes a disability or is it the environments in which they're expected to function? the cause of the disability, because we ought to be able to put some thought into this as reasonable people and think about how do we redesign our environments in such a way that kids and adults are more able to do what God created them to do and really fulfill all of their God-given gifts and talents. I think that is one of the most excellent points because all three of my kids had some, some learning differences. And for one of them in a classroom, and the teacher was just shocked when I was asking this, but in order for her to concentrate and take tests, um, she had sensory issues. So instead Mm -hmm. of sitting at the desk, she needed to stand or to lay down on the ground, and then she needed some kind of squishy thing for the tension. And I asked the teacher, you know, why is that a problem? And there wasn't really a specific answer. Hmm. It's just, well, this is the way we do things. And then another one of my kids had some challenges. And so we had to do homework in a way that helped him process language really well. Otherwise, he could, it would go in, but then it, it couldn't come out in a, in a comprehensive manner. But to make the adjustments in yeah. schools and in churches, why do you think that wall is so high? Because, I mean, they're both incredible students. Well, part of, I mean, I think one of the challenges is that a lot of times we've been historically afraid of what we don't understand. I think You know, and sometimes, you know, and, and, and this is something that I've definitely experienced firsthand. You know, folks in the scientific field aren't necessarily friendly and understanding of folks in the church. And folks in the <laughs> church can get a little defensive and maybe aren't, necessarily as you know open as they could be to some of the insight and some of the understanding that God's trying to give them through the scientific community. Boy, you put so, that really politically <laughs> nicely. <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I had an interesting experience. I spent six years on the program committee and new research committee for American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And so, like, we would get together every year and, like, review all the studies that got submitted and decide, like, what had merit and what didn't. So, last year I was doing this. And this is, um, I was sort of like, you know, the, you know, the invited peasant to this group because it's literally the top people in the world that there were, like, a couple of guys on a committee from Harvard. There were several folks from National Institute of Mental Health, these big academic people. And so, I was, like, the representative of, like, the people in the trenches. And <laughs> so, we, we were cross. Getting, we were getting through all of this and somebody made a couple of comments later, you know, in the day and it came out that I was Christian and several folks said that then these are people 30 years in academia, that they had never met someone 
who did science with them, who had that set of beliefs. And I spent two hours over dinner just getting questions fired at me from around the table. How can you believe this? How can you believe that? So, so that part of what is a challenge is that um, there's been this void. And I think that you know, a lot of times church people are mistrustful of you know, yeah. academia and what happens in the ivory towers. But there are things that the church can learn from the work that's being done that can help us better understand how to reach out and share the gospel and connect with kids and connect with families that are struggling from some of these conditions. Well, now that you mentioned that, and earlier you mentioned the, the judgment statistic, what are some examples? Like for those who are watching this today, <laughs> I know they have kids with ADHD. They're suffering from depression. They have trauma in their life. They have just all kinds of challenges. Tell me some stories that you have heard or been a part of, which would motivate us to want to make some changes. Okay, here's a good place to start. I'm actually giving a talk this weekend at one of the largest disability ministry conferences in the world. Yeah, I'm going to get there someday. (laughs) On the topic of anxiety and spiritual development. Yes. Now, a really common challenge that we would see is that kids who are anxious oftentimes, think about the experience of coming and checking out a new church if you're an anxious child. I mean, if you're a typical person, it's, it's unnerving a little bit. Yeah. Because one of the things that we've come to understand about anxiety is that, mm. and, and, and it's fascinating what they've been able to do with like spec scans and functional MRI, mm-hmm. is that we know that people who are anxious, there's an issue in a part of their brain called the amygdala. Uh-huh. I'm glad um, to know how to say that because I always say it wrong. <laughs> amygdala? Amygdala. Got and it. it's part of a larger circuit called the limbic system that's mm-hmm. involved in regulating emotions. Mm-hmm. And so basically one of the things that is an issue for folks with this is that they're pre-wired in such a way that they misinterpret the level of danger or threat, especially in a new environment. And so I'll I'll give you a real concrete example of a kid that I saw last week. And this is a girl. um, Her mom is on the staff at a very large church in our local area. And that she had had at times almost incapacitating problems with anxiety, has made a tremendous amount of progress over the last year to the point that she doesn't have any trouble doing church. She doesn't have any trouble volunteering at church. She can go, she's in middle school now, so that she'll go to the youth group on Wednesday night, but because her separation fears are so great, when they had a sleep in at the church, she couldn't do that. The notion of going out on an overnight mission trip for her would be absolutely overwhelming. Um, If for some reason, her family had to move, and if she had to think about going to a new church, worrying about what people would think about her, they probably wouldn't be able to get her out the door and into the car. So that depending upon the condition that people have, there are certain things about the way that we would do church that would be a challenge. Another example of this would be that a lot of kids with anxiety would have a very hard time transitioning from one age group ministry to another. So that you have a kid who's been in the children's ministry, and it's time to go to middle school ministry. So you're a little sixth grader, you're anxious, 
you're shy, you have a harder time making friends, and you walk into some big, loud auditorium with mm. a bunch of 7th and 8th graders who are six inches, and 30, 6 inches taller <laughs> and 30 pounds heavier than you, yeah. and they're already tied into their little small groups and sort of their clusters. And so that the notion of being able to do that could be really intimidating for a kid. You know, thinking about just the experience of being in a new place, not knowing where to go, with new people who are unfamiliar and not the kids you go to school with during the week right. would be something that could be overwhelming for them. Um, think about this. You, you touched on the issue of kids who have sensory integration issues. Yeah. And while that's very common in kids on the autism spectrum, you will also see this in kids who are anxious or kids who have ADHD. Uh -huh. And so that sometimes going into a church environment where there's bright lights, yeah. very loud music, you know, kids are like doing the little gestures and doing the things that they do during the songs. Yeah. The thought of doing that can be very overwhelming. We had a family that was in a small group Bible study we led where one of their kids had issues with anxiety, he would get an upset stomach and lock himself in the bathroom when it was time to leave for church and sit on the toilet for a half an hour because you know just his stomach was churning and upset at the thought of, again, going into an environment with unfamiliar kids. You know, as we were talking about, the kids with sensory issues will get overwhelmed perhaps if it's like too crowded and when it's busy or, you know, people I are, get overwhelmed. Well, yeah, people are <laughs> hugging each other or touching each other yeah. at church. And for a kid with sensory issues, that could be a challenge. Think about, you know, think about a kid with ADHD. If you're coming from a, like maybe a more traditional type of church, or there are a lot of Catholic churches, for example, that we serve, where the children are expected to sit through the mass of the worship service. You know, you're in a high back pew, uncomfortable clothes, expected to be quiet. You have a hard time being able to maintain your focus on things that are uninteresting. And the preacher or the priest is giving a sermon that is tailored for 30 to 50 year olds, right. as opposed to being tailored for 11 year olds. Right. A lot of kids get so turned off by that experience and they have this negative picture in their mind of what church is about, that as soon as they get old enough, they never come back. And so that, you know, just thinking about, you know, are there, you know, are there ways that we can create environments, you know, so that the kids are enthusiastic about being able to come. Their parents aren't having to fight with them all morning on Sunday to get them out of the car door and where, you know, where they can come to learn about Jesus. And in my mind, more importantly, where their parents can come to be able to be resourced to fulfill their primary responsibilities, you know, as the child's spiritual trainer. There are some simple things that we can do that don't require folks setting up a program, having to have a buddy ministry where every child has a one-on-one -on -one tag along mm -hmm. and where you're taking away resources in terms of money or volunteers from other vital priorities of the church to be able to serve these folks effectively. And that's part of what we help with. Okay, so let me ask you this. Um, practically speaking, along the lines of depression, because that's a that's a rising concern with mm -hmm. teens and young adults, and it is an ongoing concern with adults. It's so easy for churches to have a support group, even for pornography addiction or mm -hmm. for alcohol addiction. But if you say, I struggle with severe depression, it's like, oh, we don't know what to do with you. You're supposed to be happy, happy, happy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not happy, happy, happy mm -hmm. all the time. 
Okay, so that's one situation on let's construct or let's talk about some resources that the church can do. And then also for the kids, my heart goes out to those kids who enter into a world unknown, unfamiliar perhaps, or too loud or too hot or too cold Mm -hmm. or too bright. What resources, what books, what materials are you familiar with that provide practical guidelines or just an outline summary of churches here? These are the 10 things that you can do, like have beanbags in the in the youth room or, mm-hmm. you know, expound on that a little bit. Okay. First, I would comment that I'm now somewhere north of 500 posts on the blog that I write for Key Ministry. And so that we have some very comprehensive resources already together yes. to help churches with kids, ADHD, anxiety, Asperger's disorder, bipolar disorder, yes. you know, so that we've got lots and lots of stuff that people would be able to find on the blog that would help them to get a better understanding of how they might be able to serve some kids and families. I want to back up for a minute and sort of comment on something that you had said sort of at the beginning of your statement in that. In the minds of certain people in the church, there is something pejorative about having, say, like a problem with depression or a problem with anxiety, you know, because there's that, you know, the little, you know, the little verse in Philippians, be not anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, give thanks to the Lord your God, you know, and blah, 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 blah. Now, that verse so doesn't that, get thrown at anybody, I bet. Yeah, does so, it? That, so <laughs> that there's this connotation that somehow if you're anxious or depressed, it's because you don't have enough faith. You're not spiritual. Absolutely. And and there's a guy actually, you know, down the road from you all in Dallas, Rhett Smith, who wrote a fabulous book, you know, on this topic where he talked about how God may in fact be using our anxiety as a way to draw us into a closer relationship with him. It has with me. Yeah, I mean, because, I just think mm-hmm. in those struggles, that verse goes over and over. And sometimes I have to give my worries to the Lord every five minutes, mm-hmm. which doesn't make it a distance or a lack of faith. It brings me into intimacy because the Lord understands that. Well, that's exactly it. That You know, when you think about this in terms of God's priority, what's his priority? Priority is having a relationship with us because he sent his son to die so that he could have that relationship. So that in God's mind, if because you're anxious, you're forced to depend on him and talk to him every few minutes of the day, that's a good thing. And then that in that standpoint, you could almost look upon it as being a gift. Um, So that, you know, so that that would be one really concrete example. An organization that is doing some wonderful work right now in terms of helping churches to support adults with mental illness is Mental Health Health Grace Alliance out of Waco, actually. Okay, so Mental have, Health Grace Alliance. It's called Mental Alliance. Health Grace Alliance. That I mentioned Matt, Matt Stanford earlier in the interview yeah, with yeah, yeah. doing a lot of the research. Mm-hmm. Well, him and one of his colleagues from down at Baylor had started this ministry organization, and they've got grace groups now in nine different states. How where cool. It's it, it's 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 a Christian-based group where they train lay people within the church to be able to support individuals and families that are struggling with mental illness. And you know, Matt, you know, he's he's an academic neuropsychologist. 
He actually wrote a really interesting book called The Biology of Sin that people can write on Amazon, sort of explaining how certain things about the way our brains are designed may predispose folks to having certain struggles and certain issues. How great! Yeah, and so they have a wonderful ministry. And so if I was going to recommend that a church think about like where to start in terms of serving adults, I would tell them to look up Mental Health Grace Alliance. These guys are doing really neat work. Do you have their email address on hand? Well, if you just if you just Google stick them. Mental Health Grace Alliance in, you know, you'll come to their website. It's got some information about the Grace Groups, how they do what they do, where they have them. You know, mm-hmm. it's a pretty good comprehensive resource. And Matt does a nice mm-hmm. blog talking about some of the mental health issues that adults will face in the church. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I want to go back to key ministry because you just kind of skipped over that. Mm. I don't want you to. Key ministry, again, I'm going to say it, y'all have done an unbelievable job. The Pajama Conference, which had how many speakers this last year? I think we had around 35. Oh, my gosh. And it covered so much information. Go to keyministry.org. There you go. Keyministry.org. Thank you, Mm -hmm. Steve. It is so good. I think John Piper also has some very, very good material. They did a they did a conference last fall around the same time as ours okay. on this whole topic about disability in the church. Yes. Um, yeah, the, they're very passionate about, you know, in particular, you know, individuals with like more, you know, developmental intellectual disabilities mm-hmm. so that they have a very strong ministry through their church and through Desiring God. They put out a lot of resources mm-hmm. that are very helpful and they're certainly champions for the disabled in society. Um, I think, Steve, you brought up a really good point about how these challenges bring us to meditate on Christ. And I am thinking of Psalm 1, which talks about how blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of wickedness, but he walks in the way of righteousness. And then it goes on by the end of the passage. It's only six verses long saying he delights in the law of the Lord and he's going to be like a tree firmly planted by the rivers of water, which bring life. So there is such um, dependency on him is vital, which, as you know, with John and any parent raising or caregiving at any time, there's an exhaustion that goes with that, which brings us closer to the Lord, hopefully. What's well, interesting you mentioned that because one of the, you know, one of our focuses for this year for key ministry is that we've got a website completed that is in the process of beta testing now for what we're going to call freerespite.com. Okay. Because, because freerespite.com. I have yeah. so many notes that I got to put on these show notes. <laughs> because one of the things that we had found is that a lot of times families who struggle with these sorts of issues, you know, they're not going to like spontaneously get up some Sunday morning and decide, hey, we ought to go check out church. Right. You know, we have to go out into the community and build relationships with them and connect with them for them to develop enough trust to want to come and check out some of the stuff that we do on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday night mm-hmm. or at other times that the church goes ahead and gathers. And, 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 and you touched on the notion that you know, one of the challenges, an immediate need that we can meet in terms of serving families that are struggling with this is that families who have kids with these kinds of issues can't find babysitters. Um, it's, it's fascinating that when you look at the research that 
on the whole topic of disability and special needs and divorce that the best research is out there suggests that the divorce rate in families with a child with autism is no different than the general population. Yes, I read that. If you are parents of a child with ADHD, it is twice as likely that you will divorce by the time the child reaches age eight. So are again, to what extent is it that there are certain people get the autism thing yeah. and are supportive of that, but but having a child with a mental illness, you know, presents very significant stresses in terms of the parents' relationship with one another. And so that part of this freerespite.com is that we found a very practical way for churches to serve is to offer very high quality free respite care availability to families in their community and their siblings who have any kind of a disability. Because it's not enough just to be able to watch the child with the issue. Yeah. You know, as your kids so ably did a couple of years ago with their presentation for Inclusion Fusion, mm -hmm. the, you know, Jonathan's issues had an impact upon them and upon the entire family. And so that you know, we're able to do something really neat in terms of meeting an immediate need in the community. I will certainly tell you that in the areas where we have, you know, had a number of churches doing this, um, Northeast Ohio, Metropolitan Cincinnati, it's an eye-opener for people in the professions who may be atheistic or agnostic to see the churches going out and responding to, you know, a significant need in their community. And, and oh, by the way, we had found in, you know, outcome data from the churches that we've had that have been doing it for a year, that if a family comes to a church-based respite event, within a year, somewhere between 25 to 40 percent of those families start turning up for weekend worship services as a result. So, you know, just the fact that somebody's willing to reach out to them and welcome them. I had an experience where there was a family from my practice that started taking advantage of this, and I saw the mom turn up in a new member class that I was teaching at the local church. And so that, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're able to be missional and share the love of Christ, you know, in a way that's unmistakable to the surrounding community, but also meet an immediate need at the same time and help to build the bridges between the church and the families out there in the community struggling with kids who have mental illness in such a way that, you know, the gospel is heard, they come to know Jesus and they're then, in turn, able to have a place to use their gifts and talents to serve other people. You know, you mentioned a very good thing with that respite care, Steve, because, <clears throat> excuse me, the other day, it was Stonebriar's once a month um, respite night for parents. Mm -hmm. Kids Fun Zone, and they've started a tweens group now because mm -hmm. we're getting a little older. And I'm going to try and make this go through mm -hmm. this without crying. <laughs> good luck. Um, when I dropped John off, for those four hours and parents were flooding in, I walked out, and even this is my own church, it, it wouldn't matter. I walked out and I just took a deep breath and I didn't realize how vital, I can't make it through these interviews without crying, <laughs> but how sustaining even four hours is. And people don't have to know the other person's name I mean, you know their name as a caregiver, but as adults, we don't know each other all the time because we don't get out. Mm -hmm. But just that four-hour place of not worrying <laughs> and having a chance to breathe, I would go there before I would go anywhere else. 
because I know they care. And the late Stephen Covey, one of my favorite things that he ever said, and I have a bazillion of them, but one of them is, seek first to understand. Then to be understood. Absolutely. I think that is the place to begin. Well, when you mentioned that, the first time, um, Rebecca Hamilton, really fabulous lady who's part of our ministry team, her church is now the largest free respite provider in Northeast Ohio. And I was there the first night that they were doing their first respite event. Right. And I could just tell from the look on her face as the parents were coming to pick up their kids that she got it. And the people who were serving, I'd argue, were probably more blessed than the people who were served. I hear that every time. And then her daughter, who was serving at the event, would, I mean, you see these high school kids who are giving up their Friday nights yeah. to be able to do this. Yeah. And they, they were giving everybody December off so that, you know, like the kids could be with their families. And, you know, she was thinking about like, you know, her little guy that she got a chance to see every month. And she approached her parents and said, you know, wouldn't it be really cool if we went to Jake's house and watched him there? So that, you know, Uh his mom and dad get a chance to go out and shop for Christmas presents for the rest of their kids. So that, you know, we have some churches in our area that have evolved from doing the big respite events to relational respite. Absolutely. Where people in a small group find a family in their neighborhood and start taking it upon themselves to serve them without having to have any kind of like, you know, having a program, having 100 people sign up at the church to volunteer, needing to get space. They just go on a regular basis to their house. Couples take turns watching kids in an environment in which they're familiar with and comfortable. You know, Libby Peterson had done a wonderful talk on this, Uh um, on the whole concept of relational respite that we have up and available on the Key Ministry website. So that, you know, if you're in a church even where I mean, if the senior pastor, if the leadership for various reasons maybe aren't supportive, there's nothing stopping your small group or your family from going out and doing this for another family in your community where you recognize a need. Well, I've thought for so long, how difficult would it be for a small group to adopt a family? And Not, to, to go to that house, yeah, to bring... They'll do twice a month respite, and there are five or six couples. Everybody takes a turn once every three months. It's not an enormous imposition on anyone's time. You know, you'll, you'll see a lot. I mean, and this is how relationships grow, and this is how people get connected. Um, you know, that, you know, Libby talked about just going over to one of her neighbors when knowing she had a kid with issue, just grabbing the mop when mom was doing house cleaning. Absolutely. Or giving her a couple of hours to go somewhere and go read a book or go get your nails done, you know, or go do something for yourself without having to spend the entire time preoccupied wondering whether your child's going to be okay. I mean, that's the love of Christ. And I can't tell you how much that ministers to families because I'm one of them. And there were times where people would come to our house and just clean the carpets. Mm-hmm. You know? In fact, they were able to hire someone to do that or fold the laundry, or those daily tasks that get caught and entangled in the minutiae of Mm -hmm. stuff. Do you have a list like that available at Key Ministry? Because that is the practical, that's the bridge. Help me know how to reach these people in the church, or these people who are not in the church, Mm -hmm. or who are afraid to go. 
Well, we have 180 free downloadable resources on our website for volunteers and families. Hmm. Um, We do ask people to register just so that we're able to like follow up with folks. But we we don't, you know, at this point in time, we have never charged for anything that we have done. Um, Because, I mean, there are enough barriers out there already that we want to make sure that, you know, any church that wants help in doing this. You know, if it's Jesus's idea, I figure he'll provide the means Um, so that we have that available there. Um, We have lots of available resources. I write a blog for the ministry. Kitty Weatherby, who's our director of training, is now writing for groups. Kidman Magazine is going to be doing a half day of training when they have their huge children's ministry conference this fall. Um, Kitty has a blog. Harmony Hensley. They're all fabulous. Yep. You know, the free respite movement and developing, you know, these large proms as an outreach that a lot of churches are not doing mm-hmm. to teens and, you know, adults with developmental disabilities in their community. They all have blogs. They all have resources. So there's stuff through their blogs as well as stuff that's available, you know, through the Key Ministry website for mm-hmm. folks that are interested. But part of what we designed this to do is that we didn't want to provide resources without relationship so right. that if you were to email us, if you were to call us, that we have folks, like if, if you're a little church in Mississippi and you got a hundred folks coming every week and a family moved to town with a kid with autism, we're more than happy to pick up the, you know, have you pick up the phone, call us and talk you through some ideas for being able to serve that family. Yeah. Steve, as we come to a close, I mean, I could, I keep talking about this stuff for days because I know from just the work here and the Facebook page and hearing comments and talking with people out and about, I know they're so discouraged and it breaks my heart because I think, no, I feel that emotional, it's more like the, the pain of continuing on in life when you feel so drained. But what words of, as a, kind of a pastor's perspective, what words would you say to those people who have been hurt, who have been judged? I believe God never wastes a hurt. Hmm. And that, you know, part of his purpose in some of the stuff that has transpired recently, um, you know, when at the time that we're filming this, I know a couple of weeks ago, um, there was a tragedy involving, you know, Rick Warren's son. And I mean, if ever there was a kid who was like raised in a godly home, you know, it would have been Matthew Warren. And that unfortunately that, you know, one of the innumerable consequences of living in a broken world is that we have broken bodies and sometimes we also have broken brains. And it would be my hope that God will use this increasing awareness Uh of the impact of various mental health issues and how how these conditions are barriers to folks being able to participate in the church, you know, to literally draw tens of thousands of, you know, parents and families, you know, to a place where, you know, they can come to know him and have a relationship with him. And, you know, because, because he, because I know that he, we can trust him and he knows the past, the present, and the future, I am absolutely convinced that he is going to make something out of this for good. 
Now, the the other comment that I would make with, if I were speaking speaking directly to, and you know, I would love to have an opportunity sometime to get to talk to a group of senior pastors, is that, yes. you know, folks who are leading churches have lots and lots of competing priorities, yeah. and that there are folks who may choose not to pursue this because God has directed them you know, to funnel their time and their talent and their treasure in terms of like money and resources with their church ministry into some other priorities for the kingdom. That does not make them bad people. And that's something I think is important for the folks that I know in the disability ministry world to understand. Absolutely. But, but, But while there's no church that's going to be able to do everything, every church can do something. Yeah. So that you may not necessarily have the expansive kind of programming that like, you know, your dad's church, Stonebriar has, you know, where they have, you know, special rooms and special resources and a beautiful playground and lots of one-on-one trained volunteers to be able to work with everybody. But, but each church can think about what are some of the things that we can do to make our ministry environments more welcoming? You know, can we look at thinking about, for example, you know, the level of sensory input in our church and making that maybe more friendly, you know, for kids and teenagers who have issues and actually experience distress when the light's too bright, the noise is too loud, and there's too much touch or too much movement. Can we think about like a practical thing that families could do would be, you know, to, or a practical thing that churches could do would be Post as much video available online for families before they come so that a child could see, this is what I'm going to be doing when I come to church. This is where I'm going to be. This will be the the kinds of activities we'll be pursuing. This is where my mom's going to come to pick me up. Um, This is what I can expect if I go away on a retreat or if I go away on a mission trip. Mm -hmm. So that would be something practical that they could do to help kids with anxiety and to assist and make sure that kids who are prone to this have relationships that will follow them as they transition from elementary to middle school, middle school to high school ministry. Um, You know, if you think about like, for example, a kid who may have like Asperger's disorder Mm -hmm. or like a high functioning form of autism where they have trouble with social relationships, um, might they do better in a one-on-one kind of environment with adults as spiritual mentors who are more likely to kind of get them and accept uh-huh. them in their, you know, in their quirkiness and find places that maybe they can use their quirkiness to be able to serve other people. You know, you don't have to set up a respite program, right. but you could encourage families to do relational respite. Right. You don't have to have a buddy ministry, but you can think of ways of being able to welcome more kids and more families into what you're doing. You don't have to do the free respite But you can send your adults into churches in the inner city where you have kids who are struggling with learning issues related to this stuff and have them start to develop relationships with the kids and tutor. So not everyone will be able to do everything and there will never be a church that will be perfect for everyone. But every church can start by doing something. I think that's an excellent point. In fact, with the iPad and with all the electronics, which you totally love. (laughs) There's a um, autism app that I'm sure you have, but it has all kinds of behavioral things and charts and communication stuff, and you know it just goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Even if one person in a church had an iPad mm. or a or a um, phone and took pictures 
and then sent them to the family mm-hmm. to say, here's where mom will be. Here's where this is your class. Here, mm-hmm. you know, and if the kid goes, oh my gosh, it's too bright, then the mom knows I probably need to provide some um, sunglasses. I know John walks into church with sunglasses sometimes <laughs> or earphones. Yeah. And I draw dad's sermons mm-hmm. for him because he, he needs a visual. That's right. Just those few little things can mean so much. In closing, I, I've been studying the Beatitudes recently. Hmm. Never hurts. No, Scripture is usually great and helpful. Funny how it does that. <laughs> and it's a lot less expensive than coming to see me. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I came to see you, I wouldn't want to be charged, but I probably You wouldn't be. <laughs> um, but... He talks about the blessings of Christ. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who grieve. And we don't put blessing and those words together usually. But as I've been studying the Beatitudes on learning, because these things are in the character or the image of Christ, you are depending on him to change, to provide hope and help, then Several theologians say you can't even put your arms around the word blessed because it means so many different things. And I'm so glad I can talk about this now because I will have written this blog a long time ago. (laughs) I think it would, for those of you who have been watching, um, I hope that this has been encouraging to you. And we will provide show notes, all of Steve's information, plus the many resources that he referred to, and I told you he was really smart. <laughs> but also, I want you to, uh, we'll provide addresses. Keyministry.org is one of them. But email address, not emails, but website addresses. And if Steve prefers or offers emails, that's great. Mm-hmm. That you can reach out because I understand, and Steve understands, obviously, that the burden of carrying the the disability and the weight and the consequences that happen by being judged, um, those are hard to get through. And I want you to have hope today. Hope that not only there's people who understand, but there are coming resources, there are growing ministries that can meet your needs because we care and we love you. Um, Any closing words from you, Steve? Well, I guess I would just finish by, you know, thanking you and, you know, your family and the folks at Insight for doing the stuff that you're doing. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we've been plugging away at this for a long time. I know. And there had been such distrust in the church, especially around this topic of mental health and mental illness mm-hmm. and how it affects families. And to have someone like a ministry like led by your dad and your mom and people of their integrity willing to speak up, willing to support someone like you to be in the position that you're in, mm-hmm. you know, to minister literally to thousands of people like every month. We're just very, very blessed to have folks like you doing what you do. And it wouldn't be possible for us at Key Ministry to have the openings we have if you folks, you know, hadn't been faithful to what God was calling you to do, you know, and really sort of stepped up and very courageously, you know, took the lead in becoming the champions in the church, you know, for kids and families who are marginalized because of having 
all manner of disabilities. Mm-hmm. So I just want to thank you guys for what you're doing. And, you know, you walk the walk and you talk the talk. And mm-hmm. I'm not impressed easily, but I was very impressed. And so we're just blessed to have you and your family doing everything that you're doing, Colleen. Well, thank you. I think that, you know, as we've said, scripture is helpful and it's free and it does offer some good advice. And as the Lord talks about working together in harmony um, and in unity, this is a part of that. And it's just great. So, Steve, thank you again so much for your time and your wisdom and your commitment to do what you're doing to help these families as well. Thanks, Colleen. All right. Have a great day. You can find the show notes and referenced resources in the podcast description or on our website, reframingministries.com. If you were impacted by today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you rated and reviewed the podcast, shared it on your social media, or share it with some friends who you think would be touched. You can email me personally at reframingministries at insight.org. If you'd like to be updated on Reframing's activities and content, please feel free to subscribe on our website. Thank you again for joining us today at Reframing Ministries. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know in the comments on our website. Our desire is to provide biblical help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through unique and challenging segments in life. And in order to provide for more people, we'd love your support through prayer, sharing this content with friends, and partnered support. Reframing Ministries and Insight for Living Ministries operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. You can partner with us and donate to Reframing Ministries through our website. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.